Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Robert M. Price, the Bible geek. Uh, The word geek denotes an obsessed hobbyist, and I am happy to accept that definition. I find the Bible absorbingly fascinating. I do not regard it as an authoritative or inspired revelation from God. I used to, but ironically, it was the avid study of the Bible that led me to give up my religious devotion to it. I had to decide between my desire to understand the Bible and the religious faith that created my interest in it to begin with. So now I love the Bible as the classicist loves the Iliad and the Odyssey. In my view, there's nothing more pious than trying to understand the text for its own sake. Whether you're a believer or a skeptic, I'm inviting you to join me as we try to make sense of a sometimes puzzling book. Got to apologize, as I often do, uh, lately, for not uh, being more uh, frequent in uh, these podcasts, I used to do them like three, four, five times a week. I'd like to get back to that, but I've been uh, heavily engaged in writing a, another book. This one's going to be pretty darn long. I've mentioned it before. It's called Houses of the Holy a higher critical survey of the world religions. And um, I'm having a great time with it. Uh, I think you'll enjoy reading it. I take the, of course, there's a lot of aspects of any one religion you could uh, dwell on. Uh, but uh, I have to admit, I'm zeroing in on the aspects of, of any religion that I find most fascinating, namely the origins and history of it, for one thing. And uh, on the other, the theology, all the practices and stuff, I I get into some of that, uh, but uh, not nearly as much as you might expect if you want a comprehensive, well-rounded picture of it. Uh, There are plenty of books that do that. I touch on some of those things, but it's mainly the history and theology and uh, critical history. Another thing about the these books, usually the account they presented their founder doesn't necessarily even get into how much of it is historically trustworthy, and I understand that. Uh, that this is what I would do if I were teaching um, world religions in a public school. I would say, here is what they say, what they think, what they believe about how their religion started, because that's part of the doctrine of the religion. But you know me, that's not my uh, primary interest. So I, I'll give that story, but I also will uh, give some idea of the um, 
critical scholarship on it, but that is kind of absorbing me, and uh, I, I do apologize, but I hope you'll feel it's worth it once the book eventually comes out. Uh, another book of mine um, called The Gospels Behind the Gospels should be out, I think, uh, by uh, the end of this month or sometime in December. I think you're going to find that one unusual in its approach. It's uh, kind of groundbreaking, I think. Uh, who knows if anybody else will. Uh, let's see. And for you Lovecraft fans, the, the final book in my literally decades-long series of them, um, the Yogg-Sothoth cycle uh, will be out from from Ramble House. And uh, I think Lulu will actually do the publication. But uh, this uh, caps off a long um, series of anthologies that Chaosium, the gaming company, approached me about uh, back in, I think, something like uh, 93. Uh, and uh, so uh, we, the idea was to provide a reference for Cthulhu gamers who uh, were introduced to Lovecraft through this game, uh, and they began to get curious, so where does all this come from? Who are these guys, uh, Cthulhu and Yogg-Sothoth and so forth? And they figured, well, that would be a pretty good uh, item, uh, a, a, the, uh, a set of the stories that contributed to the mythology by Lovecraft and others, uh, and one for, you know, it was a theme of each book. And so we, uh, we did some author collections, uh, the Lovecraft mythos work of Henry Kuttner, Robert E. Howard, Clark Ashton Smith, Robert Block. Uh, there we were following the example of Lynn Carter's uh, series that never went too far uh, from Zebra Books, uh, where he did uh, Mysteries of the Worm, uh, the Cthulhu mythos fiction of Robert Block. Well, I did an expanded version of that. He also, but the other ones were based on or following the model of his book Spawn of Cthulhu. I, th- I think that was the name of it. I'm pretty sure it was, um, which uh, he would take a different Lovecraft story each time and include it with stories that seem to have inspired parts of it and stories that were sequels to it in one way or another by other writers. I thought hey, that is really great seeing the historical arc of development. And so most of mine were like that, the uh, the Hastur cycle, uh, the uh, the Cthulhu cycle, the Yig cycle, uh, the Yith cycle, and so on and so on. Uh, recently, Ramble House, well, they, uh, Chaosium did most of them, but not all of them. Some other publishers uh, did some. I did the most, the second to the most recent one, the Exum cycle, stories related to the rats and the walls. Uh, and then um, just recently, Ramble House put out, <coughs> excuse me, my collection, The Yig Cycle, a huge book, uh, and now The Yog Sathoth Cycle will be out, and I think you're really going to enjoy that too. So, anyway, um, let's get to some questions here. That's the whole point of the thing, after all. This is from the probably uh, pseudonymous Joe Schmo. 
He says, could you explain the story of Oedipus Rex as a religious figure, one who had all the, quote, signs and trappings of a deity? End quote. I'm referring to the explanation given by Alan Dundas in the movie The God Who Wasn't There, directed by Brian Fleming. Every Bible Geek podcast listener should see this movie. I heartily recommend everybody see it. Now playing on YouTube. Oh, I'd forgotten that. Oh, I'm glad you mentioned that, um, that it was on YouTube. The film has some fantastic scenes. The opening, um, true believers portrayed, uh, let's see, in the opening, the true believers portrayed show a wonderful, naive diorama of their faith. Wonderful, wonderful movie. Professor Dundas, professor of folklore, gives a list of 22 traits that many deities have, like the mother was a royal virgin, the hero's birth is unusual, and he's reputed to be the son of a god, etc. In the movie, the... Professor Dundas uh, reads the list and scores the players, including Jesus, Zeus, Hercules, Romulus, Perseus, etc. I thought that the Oedipus Rex drama was written by Sophocles. Was there a religious leader or saint by the name of Oedipus Rex or Oedipus the King? I see now that it was drama, probably fiction, but spells out the traits of what constitutes a religious god or leader. What say you, Bible geek? Your first appearance in said movie was the first time contacting your ideas for me, philosophy and your knowledge. Hey, one of the best things that ever happened to me. As an aside, the list of heroes included Theseus, Romulus, Hercules, Perseus, Zeus, Jason, and Apollo. All names from the polar configuration from when Saturn was our sun. Okay, well, uh, this is... Uh, Oh, and he says, P.S., perhaps I should send a letter to Brian Fleming to tell him his movie has improved my life. Oh, yeah, Joe, you should. I know that would encourage him. Okay. Um, he is, Oedipus is more of a hero than a god, but he has many of the, uh, well, in fact, not all of these, these heroes on the list were supposed to be gods. Some were demigods, like with a divine father and a human mother, etc., um, but some of them were just epic heroes, and um, and that's where Oedipus would fall. I don't think he's supposed to have divine parentage. I must, I, I may just be not quite remembering it, but he does have a, a bunch of the marks of the job. Uh, for instance, there is a a, a divine annunciation. Uh, when he's, I, I don't know if his his mom is. Uh, uh, pregnant yet, um, but at some point they receive a revelation that uh, this boy is going to one day unseat his father, the king of uh, Thebes, I think it is, and uh, and so that uh, you know, watch out is very much like Kronos, the Titan, right? He he's uh, told that one day one of his offspring will. Uh, dethrone him, and for that reason, he, he tries to kill every one of them off, right? Well, the same thing here. The, the, uh, King, uh, Laertes, I believe it is, 
uh, takes this very seriously. And uh, he says, uh, but but he, for some reason, sorry, I'm so spotty on this. Uh, he doesn't want to kill the child. Oh, yeah, I guess he does. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's coming back to me now. Uh, he, he uh, I guess, doesn't want to just stab him right in the cradle. So he tells his trusted servant to take the baby and take him far away and just leave him exposed on a hillside for the wolves to eat. Well, the guy does grab uh, baby Oedipus and does take him far away elsewhere in Greece, uh, but he just can't bring himself to leave the kid in the open. Uh, and so what he does is to find a humble uh, farmer, I think it is there, or a shepherd, somebody like this, and, and uh, tells him, that uh, this child's life is in danger. I'm supposed to have uh, exposed him so he would die. I just can't do that. Uh, I will pay you to raise him as your own son. That ought to, you know, solve the problem. I'll, I'm going to tell the king that I did abandon him uh, to, to the... To, to the wilds of nature, but uh, I'm. But you and I will be the only ones that know he is still alive. But of course, there's no chance. He's not even going to know who he is, right? Don't tell him. Um, so uh, he's going to grow up, and what are the chances he, he'd ever be able to fulfill that prophecy? Well, the the old man, uh, the farmer says, "Okay, I'll be happy to do it." And um, so he raises them as his own. And Oedipus has no notion of. Uh, uh, what uh, his origin or destiny is? Well, one day, I, I suppose after the after his foster father dies, he uh, I, I could be fill in the in the gaps here, but it seems to me, correct me if I'm wrong, that he does hear about the prophecy, but in such a way that he makes that it makes him afraid that he is to kill the old man who's raised him, who he thinks is his father. He's like, I can't do that. Uh, I don't know how to, you know, how it would happen. It might be an accident, but I'm getting the heck out of here. I'm going as far away as I can. Um, uh, how about Thebes? Yeah, why not? <laughs> well, he's um, he finally makes his way there. And he is stopped by uh, the Sphinx. You know what he looks like, sort of like one of the Assyrian cherubs. He's a lion with a human face and so forth. And uh, he stops everybody in his path and says, uh, you're not going any further unless you can uh, riddle me this. Oh, okay, let's try it. He says, what, uh, what is it that uh, walks on all, that walks on four legs in the morning, on two at noon, and on three in the evening. Well, Oedipus uh, doesn't have much trouble with that, and he says that that's easy. It's it's a human being, right? You're crawling in the morning of your life when you're a baby and can't walk yet, but by the time you're you know at the height of your powers, you're matured. Of course, you can walk and run and tap dance, whatever. Uh, so that's the two legs. And uh, however, you run out of gas after some decades. You're an old man, and like Price, you've got to walk with a cane. That's the third leg. Uh-oh. 
That is the answer. And he kills the Sphinx, uh, who's been terrorizing everybody. Uh, so he goes, uh, he's on his way into Thebes, and uh, somebody pops up and tries to stop him. Uh, and he says, um, but somehow they get into this altercation, and uh, they have a fight, and Oedipus kills the guy, and then goes on his, his way. Little did he know that this was Laertes who had been on a mission. I don't know if he was trying to kill the Sphinx or what, I forget. But uh, he was on a, a mission uh, of state, and uh, uh, he didn't count on this. And so he's dead. The prophecy has been fulfilled, though eh, poor Laertes didn't even know who it was he was fighting. right? And, and Oedipus certainly didn't know who this, his opponent was. So he goes on in to to, um, uh, into Thebes, and somebody has seen the corpse, the carcass of the Sphinx, and says, hey, everybody, we're free. Uh, somebody killed the Sphinx. And Oedipus says, well, yeah, yeah, that was me. I uh, He barred my way on my way in here, and I had to put him down. <laughs> oh, man, that's great. And that by acclamation, they make him the new king. And uh, I kind of forget about Laertes. Well, uh, he marries the queen, who happens to be his <coughs> mother. Uh, he doesn't know that, though. Uh, and uh, eventually, a plague strikes Thebes. People are dying left and right. And uh, uh, what uh, Oedipus says... Look, I, the only thing I know to do is to go ask the uh, Oracle of Apollo at Delphi, uh, what did we do to uh, bring on this plague? Are the gods punishing us? If so, for what? And how do we rectify it? Well, uh, okay, he sends a servant out and um, and uh, the uh, he comes back with the news that don't you guys remember you had a king who disappeared named Laertes? You replaced him? Don't you think that it's incumbent on you to find out what the heck happened to him? Because if you don't, that's why Apollo has sent this plague. And if you don't square things up, it's not going to end. And, oh boy, Oedipus says, okay, we got to do an investigation investigation here and find out who killed them. <laughs> oh, brother. Uh, well, he uh, sends the same servant that his father sent out to find out what happened, and he tracks down the the uh, old man in whose care he placed Oedipus, uh, and uh, he finds out what happened. He gets the whole story and uh, by interviewing people, and he comes back, and Oedipus and Tiresias and others are asking him his questions, and he sort of tries to dance around it, and at one point he says, for the love of the gods, master, ask me no more questions. But uh, Oedipus will know, and nothing's going to stop him, and uh, finally the truth comes out. Uh, it was he who killed the king, and the king was his father, and he married his mother. 
this is all in, as you say, Sophocles' Oedipus Rex, and then there are a couple of more and then sequels in the sequence. This is how Lynn Carter came to start working on a musical version of Oedipus. Uh, for instance, you can imagine the great uh, songs he was working on. Uh, We've got a great complex. Which complex? The Oedipus Rex, etc. Or how about, it's rough, believe me, brother, when you're married to your mother, etc., etc. Uh, and uh, at any rate, Oedipus cannot live with what has happened. So he blinds himself uh, and uh, exiles himself. But eventually, uh, he other stuff happens, but eventually he is taken up into heaven. Uh, he, he did terrible things, but innocently. And really, he was only obeying the decree of fate. Uh, and so uh, the whole thing is seen as the ordeal of this guy who virtually does become a god ascending to heaven at the end of the thing. So on the one end of his story, there's this uh, divine uh, annunciation prophesying what he will do to become great. Uh, terrible stuff, but he winds up as king and saves his people and kills a monster, right? I mean, that goes way back to these primal myths of uh, Sumer and uh, Greece and Akkad and Babylon and the Vedas and all that, where a character becomes king by slaying a monster. So you can still see that mytheme in it. And he uh, suffers for his sins. He takes on the responsibility of the regicide uh, and thereby averts the rest of the plague. And so uh, and then he is taken up into heaven. So he does fit many of the uh, the items on the list of the hero archetype. Uh, there's also a, a great study of this by uh, Claude Lévi-Strauss, the, the great structural anthropologist, uh, which has a whole different uh, set of meanings. I, I won't take the time to go into that. Maybe if somebody wants it, then we can do that another time. But that is uh, this is the senses in which Oedipus becomes like a divine hero. Thanks, Joe. Good question. Uh, see, Bobby Goebel says, I'd like to understand your position on what seem like prophecies of the Messiah in the Hebrew Bible. I don't remember which video I was watching, but I think I heard you say that the Old Testament doesn't prophesy about a Messiah. Did I misunderstand you or did you say this? Um, actually, yes, I did. Uh, it's, and this is, um, well, you know, no, no traditional Christian is going to buy this, but critical scholarship of the Old Testament has shown through form criticism, like looking at the form of a particular passage and say, this seems to be a kind of stereotyped um, thing. I, I wonder if it had some ritual function and uh, whereby it was repeated for some reason on some occasion. And uh, they, they uh, looked at these like... Uh, uh, Isaiah chapters 9 and 11. Uh, unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and you know he'll be called this and that. He'll be just in his reign, and etc., etc. Um, what was this? Was it a prediction of the Messiah? 
I mean, we're not even getting into whether Jesus was predicted as the Messiah. That that really is hard to defend. But the idea was, were these passages predictions of a Jewish Messiah who would restore independence uh, to Israel? Well, uh, the uh, myth and ritual scholars of Scandinavia uh, proved to my satisfaction like uh, Sigmund Mowinkle's book, He That Cometh, is a classic on this, though there are other real good ones too, where they say these were um, enthronement or birth oracles. That is, someone has just become uh, the son and the king, the son of God, because the king was always understood to be the son of God, whether in a uh, symbolic or a, an ontological sense is still debated. Uh, uh, for instance, he shall be called mighty God, everlasting father, etc. Uh, in a, uh, in a, royal wedding psalm it says uh, your throne O God is forever and ever but as you read on it's obvious they're talking about the king or psalm 2 an investiture a coronation or inaugural hymn about the king uh, the king sings part of it and he says I will tell of the decree of Yahweh he has said to me you are my son Today I have begotten you. Uh, ask of me and I will give you the nations as your inheritance and so forth. Well, yeah, that's why we're not really sure whether some of these oracles were in honor of the birth of the new prince, which would make sense. He's the guy that's going to be the king. Uh, or if they are sung uh, to and about the new king as he sits on the throne for the first time, the occasion upon which he has become God's son. But that's what the the son of God meant, the anointed, the Messiah. Originally, it simply referred to the king of Judah or Israel. Uh, Again, possibly invested with some sort of divine nature, or maybe it was honorific, who knows. Uh, And uh, so it was talking about their own kings, well, the notion that there, that these were predictions, which they don't seem to be, right? There's the only future references to the great things the king will do, uh, reigning righteously and, you know, regarding the uh, misfortunes of orphans and widows and setting free the slaves and all that. Uh, those are not prophecies of some future monarch. Uh, they're, uh, best wishes and greatest hopes for the current new king. And uh, But what happened when there wasn't any more monarchy, when uh, Israel and the north and Judah and the south got the independence beat out of them by the uh, Assyrians and the Babylonians? Well, at best, they would have uh, some kind of an ethnarch that is one of their own people as the deputy of the foreign emperor. Uh, and uh, like Zerubbabel, he was a kind of a prince. He was a Jew. He was supposedly descended from David, but he was um, a an employee of the Persian government. And so they had that, but those weren't kings. 
and they and Israelites and Jews were looking forward to the day when they would have a king again, and so they began to reinterpret these passages as as uh, predictions of a more or less distant future in which independence would be restored, and that's how they're picked up in the New Testament, and they're applied to Jesus, uh, and his messianic kingship starts to get reinterpreted in a drastic way. But yeah, I don't think there were any prophecies of um, a future uh, king restoring the the monarchical dynasty and all that. Uh, That was only a matter of later reinterpretation. Uh, And certainly there are no predictions, no clairvoyant predictions of Jesus. Um, I mean, you, you got to read that in and even conservative scholars, some uh, of them admit, well, that's a kind of a hidden meaning. Uh, In other words, not the way uh, scholars read ancient texts, right? You can't just go reading in anything you want into them if you want to know what they originally meant. Uh, thanks, Bobby. Um, let's see. I have a hunch I may have done this one before, but what the heck? Who cares? Uh, Reverend Antoine Mason uh, said, uh, is it just me or does Matthew 19, 13 through 15 seem not to fit in between the adjacent verses? Seems very odd. It seems like something was added. Then leave those verses uh, much later. Uh, let's take a fast look at them. Um, Matthew, better get the old glasses after this. I had cataract surgery, so uh, now I can see great at a distance, but I can't read a darn thing with a close up of that uh, glasses again, uh, magnifiers. Okay, Matthew 19, 13. 15 through 15. Uh, then children were brought to him that he might lay his hands on them uh, and pray, uh, you know, for their safety, for their future, or whatever. The disciples rebuked the people, but Jesus said, Let the children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and went away. This is like a politician shaking hands, right? Only a bit more serious. They want Jesus' blessing for their children, of course, safety, etc. Uh, and and uh, the disciples, you know, why is this even in there? Uh, that uh, the disciples are boorish. I love the way this is depicted in Monty Python's Life of Brian, where George Harrison plays one of the disciples, and he says to one of the parents, don't shove that baby in the Savior's face. Uh, yeah, that's the way they're, they think they're looking out for Jesus, but he says, what do you think you're doing? Uh, don't you recognize who you're, you're scaring away? Uh, these are the angels of the kingdom of heaven. You know, they're not just some brats, uh, nuisances. Get away, kid, you bother me. No, come on. Uh, and uh, it, well, that's good. That's very refreshing. Uh, but uh, there's probably another side to this. Oscar Coleman pointed this out. Uh, he was arguing that uh, the New Testament 
um, advocates infant baptism, also adult baptism, of course, but that there's evidence of baptizing infants. And he says, that's what's going on here, really. This story was either created or preserved. I mean, who knows if it happened? It might have been fabricated um, or or it might have been a, a... an event that somebody remembered because it was so striking. But why did anybody remember it? And what was this used for? Because it kind of seems like everything in the Gospels must have had currency because it was useful. And Coleman said, uh, this sounds like it's a baptismal story and therefore a baptismal formula. If you look elsewhere in the New Testament, it's interesting that in baptism stories, there's often the element of someone's initial hesitation. Uh, when uh, the Ethiopian eunuch uh, is told about Jesus by Philip, the uh, the, the deacon, he's... Um, uh, the, the the Ethiopian says, "Well, look right here. There's there's a spring of water. What's standing in the way of me being baptized here and now? Nothing. You're you're welcome to." And he baptizes him in the name of Jesus. Uh, when Cornelius and his family have the Holy Spirit fall upon them and they they're converted, um, Peter says, "Can anybody deny their right to be baptized? Because look, the Holy Spirit." fell on them just as he did us at Pentecost. Uh, And, um, oh, there's some other ones where it's like, why do you wait? Go ahead and get baptized. It's almost like, um, well, it's very much like in a wedding ceremony. If anyone here knows any reason these two shouldn't tie the knot, speak up now or keep your mouth shut from here on in. Is it really likely anybody's going to say, well, uh, now that you mention it, uh, no. Uh, And I mean, very, very rarely, but they they know by now nobody's going to do that. Uh, But why do they say it? Well, to to uh, to stress that. Yeah, nothing standing in the way of these two lovebirds tying the knot. Uh, and, and it's just that kind of, or it's like in the Lord's Prayer, uh, lead us not into temptation, which of course God's not gonna do, but deliver us from evil. You're just setting up an antithetical contrast to emphasize the second thing. Uh, and, uh, why wait? Let's get to it right now. Right, so, um, that's, uh, I'm sure Coleman was right that that's what was uh, was going on at infant baptisms, and of course the priest or whoever uh, would would lay hands on the child to bless him in the name of Jesus and say you belong to the flock of Christ or some such thing. So you're right; it it doesn't uh, need to be in that context, and in fact, originally wouldn't have been. Thanks, Antoine. Okay. Um. Anthony Giazzi from Snellville, Georgia, has sent in some uh, questions that really should be for the Bible. I'm sorry, for the Lovecraft geek, but uh, I'm not really doing that anymore because there's so few questions, and I guess everybody knows everything. Uh, but he did send it in. Let me mention it now. I know some of you uh, are Lovecraft fans, too, so let's 
take a swerve to the side on this. Uh, in his book, Criticizing Ancient Astronaut Theory, Jason Colavito credits Lovecraft with being the first to articulate the idea. What do you think that Lovecraft would make of programs such as Ancient Aliens on the History Channel? Would he say, um, I, let's see, how, how do I do Lovecraft? Uh, yeah, I've been telling you this for years in my stories. Or would he shake his head and say that they believed fiction for fact? Well, very good question. Uh, I think he would say, now, you need to calm down. I, I think he, he would not, um, accept it seriously. He used all kinds of occult and, you know, pseudo-scientific things as fictional props for stories. Uh, but who knows, you know, given the evidence we have today, he might well have believed something like that. There's been a real sea change in the last decade or so. Uh, well, anyway, um, uh, one criticism I had uh with uh, Colavito's thing is that I, as I remember, he takes credit for, for being the first to notice this, whereas in fact, back in 1981, Charles Garofalo and I, um, uh, wrote an article, uh, called, uh, oh geez, what was it? Oh man. I'm, oh, good God, it's so long ago I've forgotten, but we argued this very thing. And, uh, and so, uh, there might have been previous people that said it, but, uh, it's, uh, but I think, uh, Lovecraft, uh, may have been the first to make that connection. Uh, let's see here a second. Given his interest in astronomy, what would Lovecraft say regarding the discoveries made by the Hubble and uh, James Webb telescopes, not to mention the discovery of thousands of exoplanets? <coughs> oh, excuse me, and, and even exomoons. What would have been the impact of this on his cosmic futilitarianism? Um, given that there are a number of exoplanets in the habitable zone, the so-called Goldilocks zone of their respective stars, even some that have been identified as ocean planets. Uh, well, given that th this knowledge was arrived at by means of legitimate astronomy and not just taking the word of channelers and so on, um, I think he'd, he'd be happy to go along with it, but it wouldn't necessarily have changed his mind on cosmic futilitarianism because those people, if there are any on those planets, would have seemed to him to have been irrevocably marooned there. Uh, I mean, even though we know about the planets, we don't yet know if there's life on them or, let's say, some of us surmise it because of the uh, the UFO phenomena, right? But I don't know that he would have been privy to much of that in, in his day. Uh, he would probably say, if there are people on those planets, look, look how long it would take us to get to them, even at the speed of light. I mean, there might as well be nobody else in the universe. And, and why so far flung? 
so I think he would have still had uh, futilitarianism. I mean, if they have evolution like we do, they face the same problem of nihilism. Uh, presumably, evolution will eventually pass them by. They'll be replaced by other species, and then who will even remember them? Just like us. Uh, so I don't know if that would have made any difference to his idea. Okay, maybe we're not alone in the universe. Maybe they're all a lot of people who are alone in the universe, so to speak. Um, but uh, who knows? Well, in fact, uh, look at this. Uh, look at it this way. Even in his fictional idea of there being inhabited other planets, what are the implications? The uh, The inhabitants turn out to be completely superhuman uh, to the and completely inhuman to the point where we start looking like just a bunch of monkeys in the zoo even in our own eyes so uh that if that were the case that would really pop the balloon of our arrogant uh, anthropocentricity. Oh, we're the, the crown of creation. Yeah, right. So I don't know that that would have changed his, his view. I could be wrong, though. I'm just, uh, you know, making inferences. Very, very insightful question. Okay, uh, third one, he says, uh, in the movie Underwater, uh, it features a monster that is essentially Cthulhu. It takes place on an undersea drilling platform in the deepest part of the ocean in the Pacific. Needless to say, the drilling operations have disturbed that which should be left alone. There's no reference to Lovecraft or the mythos that I can find. What do you think? Is this another case of the cultural impact of Lovecraft? Well, yeah, it certainly is that, but I would uh, suspect that this sounds so much like Brian Lumley's uh, story... Oh, no, don't tell me. Senility encroacheth again. Um, oh, boy. Oh, he's got one of his early short stories has to do with the undersea mining operation and the drilling uh, stabs a buried uh, ancient old one and... Uh, Trouble begins. Uh, I, I wouldn't. It's uh, it's not that impossible a thing to think up. So he may not have borrowed it from Brian, uh, but um, it's. I would say there's some kind of Lovecraftian connection because if if there isn't, uh, it's certainly a case of great minds thinking alike. I'll have to look at that flick. I've never heard of it before. Thank you. And finally, uh, what do you think is the state of Lovecraft's influence on media, culture, etc., given the cancerous impact of cancel culture? I know that you've been a victim of that as well. Well, uh, I guess per perhaps what you, you're asking is, given that so many um, young Lovecraft readers have been uh, conscience-stricken once they got woke. Uh, they feel like they, they don't have the right to enjoy Lovecraft anymore because he was a racist. Uh, then uh, that could 
cut down on the popular interest, but I don't think it has. I mean, how do I know, right? You'd have to take surveys and all that to really know, but it seems to me that uh, that uh, nerds like me dis- continue to discover Lovecraft at the in adolescence and uh, never really let it go. And in fact, even some of the uh, loudest voices damning Lovecraft are Lovecraft fans, ostensibly, very confused ones. But the uh, the so-called Necronomicon, with a capital C, the Lovecraft Convention every couple of years, that's been taken over by woke Lovecraft haters. Uh, yet, you know, you wonder, why are you even having this thing? Surely you realize you're honoring Lovecraft even as you condemn him. So that alone, that paradox, indicates that maybe the wokeness isn't really uh, impeding the uh, Lovecraft craze. Uh, So thanks, Anthony. Uh, Back to the Bible Geek. Uh, Let's see. uh, Lawrence uh, from the UK says, assuming that there really was a historical man, Jesus, and that he was sentenced to crucifixion by Pontius Pilate, uh, there is the issue about how Jesus was able to both communicate and understand Pilate at his trial. If Pilate really did ask Jesus, uh, are you the king of the Jews? No, that's supposed to be the centurion, isn't it? Oh, well. um, th- then I think I am right to think that this would have been asked in Greek. I can't imagine Pilate speaking Aramaic or learning it just to speak to any Jews he might encounter. By all accounts, he was a pretty ruthless guy. So how was he able to communicate with Jesus? Would Jesus have had a basic working knowledge of Greek, or would there have had to be interpreters or translators? I'm interested in this because I've frequently heard from scholars like Bart Ehrman that Jesus was a lower-class, illiterate, Aramaic-speaking Jew. And I don't recall it ever being mentioned before whether Jesus, again assuming he existed, would have spoken or understood any other languages besides Aramaic. Uh, Well, it's not impossible that uh, there would have been interpreters present. Uh, We're told in one gospel that the... um, that the accusers of Jesus wouldn't set foot in Pilate's palace because uh, that would ritually defile them, and Passover was immediately coming up, so they couldn't have that. That might uh, militate against the idea of there being uh, bilingual interpreters there, uh, Roman employees, but who knows? Maybe they employed some uh, Greek-speaking Jews. Uh, And... uh, so I don't find that much of a stumbling block, uh, and nor is it impossible that Jesus did have some uh, Greek uh, knowledge, because if he was a carpenter, I, I think that's a mistake. Uh, I, I think that uh, Vermesh was right, that when it says, is not this the carpenter or the son of the carpenter and all that, they're talking, they're using a rabbinic metaphor for an, a skilled exegete of scripture. They don't mean he actually had a carpenter shop someplace, but it's possible that's what it meant. And if so, um, um, 
it's it's conceivable that he had to have business dealings with Greek speaking clients, especially since Nazareth, if he lived there. Another big issue uh, was pretty close to Sephora, a, a Hellenistic Jewish city. Uh, Bill O'Reilly in his book, Killing History, oh, what a mess, uh, pictures Jesus and his father uh, getting their lunch pails and their hard hats on to uh, walk to Sephiroth and, and be part of construction projects there. Well, <laughs> he seems to know that they did. Uh, that's going way too far, but it, it's not impossible. So you can envision scenarios where he or Peter would know some Greek uh, because, you know, who do you sell the fish to? Uh, there, there must have been Greek-speaking Jews and Greeks and Phoenicians and all that stuff. So I don't find that too much of a problem. It is, a, I keep saying this, it's a good question. But it's not a, like an absurd notion to suggest as if you were to say that uh, Jesus uh, could speak Swahili or uh, or Mandarin because, after all, he was omniscient being the son of God. I mean, he, he, of course, nobody uh, in scholarship is saying that. Uh, but Bart could be right that if Jesus was a carpenter, he might have, you could expect him to be, Illiterate, but you know those uh, uh, that scene in John where Jesus has just been discoursing, and his critics say, "Where did this man, man get all this learning? He, he never formally studied." Yeah, sure, there must have been uh, people that uh, were curious and made it their business to to learn uh, other languages. Um, that's not so odd. And so I don't, I don't see that as a huge problem. Okay. Who are we talking to this time? Bill Nelson from, um, uh, Charlottesville, Virginia, who requests a Southern bumpkin accent. Well, I guess I've got one of those. Uh, where is the rest of the Bible? That is to say, who determined it was a singular book that shouldn't have others in a kind of biblical series dropped on us uh, from up on high maybe every 400 years or so? I mean, we got the New Testament, but shouldn't have, shouldn't we have received the even newer Testament by now? The Book of Mormon, of Course in Miracles. I feel a little ripped off. Like I ordered a set of encyclopedias, but stopped receiving books after D. Is there not more we should be told by now, or has everything that's needed to be said been said? Seeing as there are still some pretty heavy arguments amongst theists about some pretty foundational stuff to this day, wouldn't a 2.0 be in order? Well, yeah, I sure think so. And that, my friends, is why I have undertaken to compile a whole new set of Pauline epistles. Um, it's available as an audio book and an e-book, I think, from um, uh, e-book it. Uh, but I'm going to put it out as a paperback sometime soon. I hope it's got... Uh, hypothetical letters. What would have Paul said, based on what we think we know about him, what would he have said about 
uh, other issues that uh, didn't come up. Like, would he really have said that he believed Christ was God? Uh, would he have been a pacifist or would he have thought Christians had the right to fight in wars uh, and so on and so on. So uh, once I'll have to alert everybody when that comes out, that ought to settle some questions. But yeah, you know, a, a lot of people make a big, big deal uh, that um, in first Corinthians 13, he says, when the imperfect, I'm sorry, when the perfect comes, the imperfect will pass away. Uh, now we see as in a glass darkly, but then, uh, face to face, we will know as thoroughly as we are known by God. Well, uh, dispensationalists and Calvinists and others say, what is the perfect? Well, of course, uh, the writer has to mean the parousia, right? The, the end of history as we know it. But they say, <laughs> probably don't cough when they say it, but they say that this refers to the completion of the New Testament canon. Oh, that's, that's right. That's gotta be it. Anything you could want to know is in the New Testament. I, yes, you must be uh, reading a different book than I am. Uh, but they, they feel like they gotta, puff it up and say, oh, it's all you could ever want. Uh, nothing else is necessary. It's all sufficient, which is, is ludicrous. Um, I mean, would Paul be saying now we say, see in a glass darkly? Well, of course, the canon hadn't been all finished, but... Um, uh, in his day, but you can't tell. Um, but like, if you take Paul's thought to be normative, you have to figure he must have known or thought loads more stuff than he ever had occasion to write down, right? Uh, so, um, how would, and even at that, he says, we have only the dimmest picture of the truth one day, though. It'll, that'll be different. Would, it just seems impossible he would be thinking that a uh, completed New Testament would uh, fill in the gaps in his knowledge. Uh, it just seems ridiculous, and it's a way to head off <coughs> at the pass those who would suggest that, hey, uh, let's uh, let's add on a couple of more books. Uh, or with Harold Camping, for instance, um, he said that, well, a lot of dispensationalists and reforms say speaking in tongues is supposed to be revelatory, but that can't be because um, when the perfect comes, and that's the New Testament, the imperfect, which Paul explicitly includes speaking in tongues as, that'll pass away. So that's over. That's why there are no legitimate tongue speakers anymore. Uh, and you, you freaks who claim to be speaking in tongues, you're just kidding yourself. Or worse, <laughs> the devil's speaking through you. Shambolicacy. Yeah, right. Uh, oh yeah, okay, uh, another question from Bill. Uh, at what point did people determine the Bible wasn't just a work of fiction historically? When and how was its manifestation or correlation to truth and reality? Uh, when I read the Bible, I, when I read the Bible, I didn't come away with this is real. Instead, it just read like Grimm's fairy tales to me. 
Is there any proof that the Bible was ever intended to be anything but a fictional endeavor? If so, where can that be found? Well, uh, it seems like, like if there was ever a time when people said, uh, hey, this is uh, pretty good stuff, uh, I like these folk tales, um, I don't know if any real evidence of that survives. Modern scholarship has determined that it is virtually all fiction, sometimes roughly based on some historical events. But the way they know this is the failure of the narratives uh, to uh, either have any corroboration in other ancient documents or in archaeology, or that these narratives are actually contradicted by other historical sources or uh, archaeological discoveries. And uh, that's that was a huge problem and still is. People just don't want to say that it's fiction. Uh, and uh, why? Now, even when, when in Romans it says all the Old Testament stuff was written down for our benefit so we could take a lesson from it. Well, of course, obviously that's true. Uh, and that would be true if it were fiction. But uh, it would be a cautionary tale, but it wouldn't demand that it's fiction. Uh, maybe what he means is those who don't uh, remember the lessons of the past are doomed to repeat them. Uh, so I, I don't know. Um, John Dominic Crossan makes a big deal saying that the early Christians couldn't and didn't have taken the stories of Jesus as literal history. Uh, and they would think we are idiots when we do take them that way. I, I think he's, he's really just doing the old, I said it, Jesus believed it, that settles it maneuver. Uh, I'm very intelligent. Uh, Jesus was certainly very intelligent. He must have been at least as smart as me. So uh, whatever I think, he must have thought. Uh, that's just what uh, Henry Cadbury, the great Quaker New Testament scholar, called the peril of modernizing Jesus. And I think that uh, <clears throat> Crossan and Bishop Spong, who was much like him, uh, fell into that error. I, I don't think there's any reason. There are occasional details and stories where it, it makes me think the writer was aware of writing just like a fable, kind of. Like the Road to Emmaus story, uh, where uh, Jesus is not recognized by two of his disciples as they're walking toward Emmaus. And uh, he says, you know, why are you guys so glum? What happened? Uh, and says, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem, because that's where they're going from, uh, who doesn't know what's happened in the past few days? And Jesus says, so, <laughs> like what? Uh, and they say, well, Jesus of Nazareth, he was a prophet, uh, strong and powerful for God. We, we were sure he was going to be the liberator of Israel, but guess not, because uh, he got crucified, and, and then somebody stole his body. Uh, oh, brother, I can't, uh, I dread the ribbing I'm going to get when I get back to Emmaus. Uh, like, you know, people that put up billboards for Harold Camping saying the world's going to end in September, so-and-so. Uh, and Jesus says, 
wait a minute, don't you get it? Uh, the, the deal was in, in scripture that when the Messiah came, he would have to initially uh, be beaten up, tormented, and killed, and only then enter into his glory. What, how'd you miss the first part? Uh, and, and then, uh, so he's explaining this to them, and they're thinking, wow, what, what is this? Hey, look, we're home. Why don't you come on in and have dinner with us? Uh, and, uh, so he does, and in the, when, when Jesus as the guest breaks the bread, suddenly they recognize him, and he disappears into thin air, and they say, you know who that was, don't you? Didn't our hearts blaze within us when he was disclosing to us the meaning of scripture? Uh, that, uh, uh, that is so obviously symbolic. When do they recognize Jesus when he is invisibly present in the Eucharist? Uh, that I find hard to imagine was not cut from the whole cloth of fiction. Uh, and, and like the Great Commission in Matthew, uh, go out there and convert the nations, teach them to do everything I said to you, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and I will be with you as you go until the end of the age, period, the end. What? Isn't that obviously addressed to the readers, not to the twelve disciples? Uh, it, it seems to me it is, and it's an artificial ending. So there are some things like that that seem to me to be self-consciously fictional artistic flourishes. But uh, I don't think there was a time when when Christians thought that the the Bible was just fiction. Uh, now, you do see something like that in the second century with Origen of Alexandria, who allegorized scripture. But you have to remember that this was a strategy uh, for him for when you ran into a, a, a contradiction, or as he said, a historical absurdity in the Gospels. He says, now that's no accident. It's not just a dumb goof. Uh, a little red light ought to go off in your head when you see one of those who said, wait a minute, that can't be right. Right, right, take it further. There must be a deeper meaning that this is trying to signal you that you ought to find and dig deeper. And so, and so you, you come up with some hidden inner meaning. But, uh, but even he was inclined to say that you should take it literally whenever you can. It's only sometimes that, that it's not. Or, uh, even if you can find an allegorical meaning in any Bible passage, that doesn't mean the literal historical sense is not there. It's just that perhaps it's also got a deeper meaning. So, um, this idea that some have that, oh, uh, this notion of the inerrancy, the facticity of the Bible is a modern invention. I, I don't think that's right. I think you're kidding yourself. Um, and uh, so where is it going to be found? Well, you know, just looking into the Bible and seeing these things that, that almost have to be literary flourishes. Well, they probably are. Um 
not everything looks like that, though it all looks more or less mythical, but that's a different issue. People believed in those, too. Well, a good book to read would be Gospel Fictions. It deals with this in a very clear and yet nuanced way by Randall Helms. I believe it's R-A-N-D-E-L, Randall Holmes. Is that right? Have I got the right name? Well, actually, I could have the name wrong, but I know the title is Gospel Fictions. Hmm. Hmm. Let's see how long do I want to go today. Well, let's do at least another long one. Uh, this is from Nick. Uh, he says, this past week I've been studying Second Kings and found an article you wrote on Elisha and the Bears posted on centerforinquiry.org. April 20th, 2010, uh, that was insightful. Within the article, this was particularly interesting. Quote, first we are to picture the prophet, the successor to the miracle-working Elijah, making his rounds like one of the circuit-riding preachers of 19th century frontier America. Shortly, he will pull into town and receive donations for psychic feats, such as finding lost objects, giving oracles, interpreting dreams, like Samuel the seer does in 1 Samuel 9, 3-12, and then on to the next hamlet, end quote. I've been thinking about this and wanting to learn more. Do you have any references available that you could share with me to further study the 19th century circuit-riding preachers and their behaviors when moving from town to town? Uh, there is an old Harper and Row torch book, as they called them, a, a nice square-bound uh, large trade paperback and I think the title was American Evangelicalism I almost think the editor was a guy named McLaughlin but I could be wrong and uh, it deal it has a bunch of readings dealing with uh, the history of evangelicalism, including circuit riders, uh, Peter Cartwright being one of the biggies. In fact, you might want to look up Peter Cartwright, uh, which I think is C-A-R-T-W-R-I-G-H-T. Uh, look him up on uh, Amazon or Wikipedia or something. He was a classic one. Uh, and... Uh, to the stuff they did. Uh, well, uh, Sidney Alstrom, which is A-H-L-S-T-R-O-M, uh, he had a, a massive book called, I think, A History of Religion in the United States. But again, if you look up Sidney Alstrom, you'll find it. He must discuss them. It's been many years since I've read that, but I, I'm sure he gets into that. It was a major thing in the growth of American Protestantism. Yeah, what a fascinating thing, the, the, the uh, circuit riders. Ooh, 
this is from our buddy, Dr. Barton. Uh, I have an interesting new insight that may be unique-ish or may have simply slipped by me. I came across this little hint of lost, so far as I know, Christian belief while addressing the identity of the two uh, slash huh, uh, one witnesses in Revelation operating off of memory and not bothering to check my sources, I offered uh, that both Elijah and Moses were likely witnesses as neither had died. This incident allowed them to return to earth to die in accordance with God's will that all men shall die. I forgot that Moses did die in Deuteronomy 34.5 and was buried in 34.6. Even if we assume that there's something odd about no one knowing where his tomb was, then how would one derive a belief that Moses ascended to the heavens like Elijah? Well, uh, what if an early Christian text, canonical at least to some sects, built on the idea that Moses died, um, was buried, and arose from the dead. This could have been modeled after Jesus' resurrection, or it could have been a precursor to the Jesus story. That led me to Jude 1.9, uh, where Michael and Satan are contending over the body of Moses. It's a throwaway line with little to explain it. It uses... Uh, diacrino, but that word doesn't exactly mean contend or fight, it's more separate, so I'm not uh, sure what is happening here. <laughs> what does James Taylor say? I'm all in pieces, you can have your own choice. Maybe that's it. Um... Uh, the best idea that I have is that Satan is trying to claim the body to corrupt and decay it, while Michael is claiming it for God to make it of the new flesh or some such. The point is not my attempt at understanding the passage, but that it relies so strongly on an unknown tradition in early Christian belief. Since... Um, uh, since Jude makes several references to First Enoch, it is not unreasonable to assume that the story of Moses came from a different canonical text, a lost text. Um, let's see, then I remembered hearing about an ascension of Moses, or an assumption of Moses, I think it's usually called. And Well, anyway, that, however, turned out to be Moses' heavenly journey to receive the Torah. Uh, however, that reference led to the, the, assumption, the assumption of Moses, of which we have only a portion. Due to the surviving text and external references in the works of uh, uh, Galatius in Origen, see the Wikipedia entry on Assumption of Moses, some scholars have postulated that Jude verse 4 might be mining the assumption, um, and that story is one of the missing pieces. I'll have to find a good uh, copy of the Assumption of Moses and read it over. Uh, 
It probably doesn't contain much more information on the death of Moses, but it is interesting to speculate that early Christians might have believed in a resurrection uh, of Moses as well as of Jesus. But it is interesting... Yeah, um, if that was the case, then it is easy to see why the church suppressed this document fairly early on to avoid confusion or empowering the Jews. Um, let me, uh, there's one more uh, question. Um, oh, no, that that's it for Dr. Bartons. Uh, actually, what we have a, a piece of is probably not the assumption of Moses, but the testament of Moses. In fact, many books that contain the text will tell you they may have jumped the gun identifying it. Uh, and uh, though the testament of Moses does speak of the ascension of the righteous, uh, but it doesn't say anything about Mo. Um, but the assumption of Moses, which we don't have, my guess is that did. Uh, and we do know the contemporaries of uh, the New Testament did believe Moses ascended into heaven. Uh, Philo and Josephus both say that. Now, where did they get it? Well, almost certainly from interpreting the Deuteronomy passage, as you mentioned, uh, as as trying to... Uh, hint that Moses was assumed into heaven because it says he died and God buried him. And even today, nobody knows where the grave is. Uh, that strikes me as, as saying that it's like one of these things where like Origen said, God knows who wrote the epistle to the Hebrews. Well, he, he meant uh, that if anybody knows, it's God, because down here, nobody knows. Uh, and uh, somebody wrote it, but uh, only God would know. I think people rightly took Deuteronomy to mean that uh, no human hand buried Moses. God uh, secreted him away buried him in the clouds, so to speak. Uh, and uh, what's he doing there? Well, he must be having fellowship with God, like Elijah and Enoch. Uh, and so they figured that the two of them and uh, Enoch had gone straight to heaven uh, in, in the body, which meant that um, anybody else who died was still dead, perhaps awaiting a resurrection. But in the, in these early days, they thought everybody dies and goes to Sheol. If you die and go to heaven, it's, well, if you go to heaven after your earthly life, it means you didn't die, but were taken up in the, the holy elevator. Uh, and uh, so I think that this is why Philo and Josephus rightly understood Deuteronomy to mean he didn't really die. He was buried in the heavens, uh, taken from our sight, as it says in Acts, about Jesus disappearing. And the book of Revelation, and the, the and Mark in the Transfiguration, uh, they both know that too, which is why Elijah and Moses appear to Jesus, because uh, they're still available. They didn't die. They went to heaven instead. 
And uh, Duncan Derrett uh, wrote an article about uh, in the Journal of Higher Criticism about numerous biblical characters that were later said by the rabbis to have been taken up into heaven. Um, uh, let's see. There were some uh, early Christians that didn't buy that and thought, no, no, Moses died and was buried someplace. So who was the second witness beside Moses? Must have been Enoch. He was the only other one that didn't die but went to heaven. Uh, and uh, so it was Enoch and Elijah and many. Uh, Bousset talks about this in his uh uh, book, uh, The Antichrist Tradition. Uh, they, they assumed, well, it's gotta be Enoch. Uh, but, uh, if you look close, did Enoch, uh, inflict plagues on anybody? As it says, one of the two witnesses doesn't. One calls fire down from heaven, that's Elijah. The other one, uh, inflicts plagues, that's Moses. Uh, so, uh, it, it has to be that, and it just means the, that, the the revelator was in the camp who believed Moses was dead. I'm sorry, that Moses was not dead, that he had been uh, assumed into heaven. By the way, with this debate over who gets the body of Moses, in one of the uh, Dead Sea Scrolls, I think it's something like the the, uh, Apocalypse of Amram or something, it says that uh, Moses' father was the one uh, over whom uh, God or the angel and Satan were uh, bickering. Uh, <laughs> was that another version of the same thing? It kind of sounds like it. Uh, was that a way to try to harmonize the literal sense of the Deuteronomy passage with the idea that Moses hadn't actually died? Oh, well, it was his dad. Who knows? Okay, you got a sharp eye there. Uh, here's one from Adam Wright. He says, I read your biography on your website. You mentioned some influences that took you from liberal Christianity to atheism. These were Derrida, Don Cupid, and the 19th century critics of the New Testament. What were some ideas these individuals shared that were significant in your transition from liberal Christianity to uh, atheism? Uh, well, with the uh, the uh, two begin critics like Strauss and Bauer and so on, rereading those guys because I had read them years before the rationalism and the skepticism of virtually everything seemed so reasonable to me that it I, I had slipped back into giving too much possible credit to the narrative, some of them being historical. I said, no, these guys are right. We're just dealing with fiction here. Uh, so much for apologetics. And as for... Um, Derrida and deconstruction, and that, and also uh, Don Cupid, who was much influenced by uh, Derrida and and other um, postmodern thinkers. They uh, kind of destroyed for me the viability of idealist metaphysics that somehow floating above our atmosphere of words 
there is a, a transcendent cloud of ontological something or other, the transcendental signified, as Saucer put it. Uh, the words are really referring to each other, not to some mystical entities beyond language. And uh, that... Uh, uh, Really, the, these notions of God or angels or Platonic forms, in what sense do they exist? Uh, what, what are we talking about there? Uh, and uh, I thought of how Comte had said, this stuff is just what I believe he called cloudy mythology. We think we're so smart. Well, we don't believe that stuff. Literally, those miracles and Jesus and all that. But but there is a, a metaphysical layer of reality that those things communicate, that the myths and stuff communicate to us. I began to think, what are you talking about? Is there any reason to, to think that? I mean, on the one hand, you think, well, isn't consciousness itself something beyond the matter that transcends it? It might be, but then what is it you think it is? Is, is it a ghost inside your head? Uh, what, what is it? Uh, and it, maybe it's just uh, something like <clears throat> one brain hemisphere, um, be what it thinks is echoed by the other hemisphere back to the first hemisphere so that it seems like it has come from the void and that it's a, a voice in our head that is not us. I don't know, but uh, I don't want to do the old God of the gaps thing. Right where you say, uh, well, I can't figure this one out, so I guess God did it. Uh, that's, if, you know, if, if we'd continue to think that way, there'd be no science, no medicine, no nothing. And so I, uh, I really hesitate to get into the idea that there are non-physical, um, ontologically real uh, entities. And I think that really came through to me reading Derrida and others. But, uh, yeah, maybe I'm wrong. Uh, I'm I'm open to continuing to think about all these things. Um, you gotta be open to revising your views. Seems to me. Uh, one more. Um, uh, what? Uh, Is, am I, uh, oh, here's another one about Jude and the, uh, the dispute about Moses. This one is from Dustin in Indiana. He's a slightly different angle. He says, I'd love to hear your thoughts on Jude 9. And Jude has only one chapter, so you just refer to it by verse numbers, right? Uh, where the writer alludes to an apocryphal story about St. Michael and Satan fighting over Moses' body. How do fundamentalists handle a story like that without admitting the existence of extra-biblical sources? Well, there's um, there's three uh, ways that I know of. One is to say, well, Jude simply knew it by revelation. 
that God inspired him. And as Jude wrote this, he said, son of a gun, I never knew that. But that it was like automatic writing. He was just a stenographer. That that seems a little uh, hard to swallow. Uh, then uh, the second one is, well, uh, maybe uh, there was a written source that happened to have ancient facts. I mean, you're talking about people that believed all these Old Testament figures were real individuals, right? So uh, they would figure it's not that far-fetched to say that there were records that weren't inspired by God, but did contain accurate statements, and somebody knew that uh, this is what had happened when Moses died. There was this uh, shouting match over who ought to get his body. I don't know, what what would Satan have wanted with it? Have it stuffed or something? Uh, uh, I don't know, but... Uh, uh, so they would say maybe it was just uh, using uh, the information from uh, some non-scriptural source, which is, uh, of course, what is in view in the Deuteronomic uh, and Chroniclers' uh, histories, right, where it says this king battled that one. And if you want to know more about it, you can read about it in the book of the kings of Israel and Judah. There's several references like that. We don't happen to have those books if they existed. Some people, uh, including me, kind of think that that's just to make it sound authoritative. But let's assume there were. There could have been. Right? And... Um, so we, that's not that far-fetched, um, but, of course, the whole idea of such a scene uh, rather strikes one as, as uh, fanciful mythology. Uh, but uh, this, this one they also already use in the case of uh, the, uh, the Jude quotation from First Enoch. Behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousands of his saints, etc., etc. They say, Enoch, the seventh from Adam, said this. Well, yeah, that's in first Enoch. And so fundamentalists similarly say, uh, well, just because uh, the writer knew this, because he had a factual narrative that mentioned it, uh, that happened to be true, why shouldn't he use it? That doesn't mean that if he found such a narrative, and they did eventually, right? They found First Enoch. That doesn't mean it should be in the Bible, though Tertullian thought it should be, interestingly. And I think the Ethiopian Orthodox Church uh, has it in their Bible. But fundamentalists don't, but they say, yeah, what the heck? It was just an ancient historical source uh, that he happened to find and quote. Um you have to decide if that seems plausible to you. Uh, it's, um, I find that just uh, an unnecessarily far-fetched. Um, I mean, we've got a document that says this, and that, by the way, matches up with Jude at many other points without extensive quotes, but uh, same messages, same metaphors, etc., uh, I deal with this in my pre-Nicene New Testament. It was David Pursuti, a scholar of the uh, Book of Mormon, that pointed this out, and I give him the credit for it. Uh, it. It seems obvious that this is based on the pseudepigraphical book, First Enoch, which some do consider canonical. 
But if you don't, you just have to say, well, all right, it's not inspired, but it happened to be correct on that point. Yeah, good luck with that one. Mm -hmm. Ah, do I... Let me do one more here. This is from, I think, Caden Fox. Sometimes I'm not sure that my, uh, that the, uh, which one the name goes with when I just read it, but one I'm about to read, I've got to do something about that. I think Caden said this. My wife is a singer-songwriter. Although she's quite good, having been writing songs for decades now, we've yet to see any financial return on our investment, partly to network other musicians and partly to increase her skill set. She's attended several free online group classes. One of the stranger ones was a class on singing. It was strange because it was highly theological in nature and included the claim that only God and humans can sing. I knew that nothing I could say about other animals would make any difference. The argument for angels being able to sing has either no or next to no biblical support, as the stars singing can be understood as literal stars making noises via stellar seismography. Well, I wonder if the actual stellar bodies are happy, right? It says, when the, the, the stars sang for joy, I, I, and since uh, angels are mentioned close by. I would assume that does mean angels sang. Okay, uh, so I started looking for musical encounters of the third kind. Fairy tales, you may have noticed, often don't have any fairies in them. That's because the earliest use of fairy is as a place. It's an enchanted realm, a realm outside of the normal world, outside of Einsteinian space-time, which is why uh, sirens and mermaids notwithstanding, it's hard for me to find any evidence of the third kind being able to sing. I use the term both as a nod to the film, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, and to be purposefully vague enough to encompass the European idea of the Fai, F-A-E, the Arabic idea of the Jinn, the modern idea of the abducting aliens, and so forth. I thought perhaps you would know how common the idea of angels and Fai not being able to sing is. I've never heard of it. Uh, even before the class, I was trying to figure out why the devil, when he went down to Georgia, didn't simply declare himself the winner as he was the judge. Well, clearly the song follows an older pattern. It's similar to the very first Lovecraft story I ever read, the music of Eric Zahn, included in an anthology of ghost stories introduced by Alfred Hitchcock. Huh. In that story, Eric Zahn can play the instrument but cannot sing. He's a mute, I think, right? And although Satan isn't presented as a mute, only Johnny actually sings in The Devil Went Down to Georgia.
The original seems to be the myth of Marsyas and Apollo. The satyr, though, plays the double oboe instead of going strings to strings with Apollo and the lyre. Apollo wins by singing and playing his instrument at the same time, which an oboe player cannot do, although some versions of the myth uh, have Apollo winning because he can use the same pattern of plucking with the lyre held upside down, while that doesn't really work with woodwind instrument, instruments. <laughs> um, I mentioned Marsyas because between the mention of satyrs in the King James Version and the story of St. Anthony meeting a satyr who explained that while his kind was worshipped in antiquity, his kind was worshipped in error. It may be possible to argue against only gods and humans being able to sing if there is any evidence from antiquity of singing jinn or fi. What do you know about either evidence that the third kind of creative thinking, beings, fairies, jinn, etc., after either, uh, sorry, what do you know about either evidence that the third kind of creative thinking beings, being either able or unable to sing, uh, or why only humans and God are able to sing, why would the issue even be a theological stance in the first place? Hmm. The only thing I can think of is that there's some sort of sentimental idea that you know, I, I, uh, I don't know where that comes from and it suddenly occurs to me they're they're singing. The angels are singing in Revelation, right? Uh, they they give you the liturgy. Uh, you can see it indented in most Bibles, uh, and uh, they. Oh, let's see. Uh, let's see here. Naturally, I think of uh, Dracula. Listen to them, the children of the night, what music they make. Uh, let's see. <laughs> let's see. Round the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders, uh, clad uh, in white garments with golden crowns upon their heads. From the throne issue flashes of lightning and voices and peals of thunder, and before the throne burn seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. Um, let's see. Yeah, okay. The, the, uh, Around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. And it describes them, you know, like a lion, an ox, an eagle, a human. Um, 
Yeah, and the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all round and within, and day and night they never cease to sing. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come, and so on. Um... Well, and whenever the living creatures give honor and glory and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the twenty-four elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne singing, uh, Worthy art thou, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. Uh, for thou didst create all things, and by thy will they existed and were created. And let's see, I think there might be... Um, oh, glorious. Yeah, the, uh, then, uh, verse, chapter 5, verse 8... And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp, and with golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy art thou to take the scroll and open its seals, for thou wast slain, and by thy blood didst ransom men for God." from every tribe and tongue and people and nation, and has made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on earth. Um, uh, let's see. Yeah, okay there. Uh, um, the four living creatures are singing. Uh, not good enough to be an angel. I have wings and stuff. Um, let me just see if I can find, uh, another reference where it actually uses. Uh, let's see, that one doesn't say. Uh, we might have one more. Uh, they fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give thanks to the Lord God Almighty, etc. Oh, let's see, there's another one. Okay, uh, let's see. Chapter 15. Uh, let's see uh, verse 2, I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands, and they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, uh, saying, uh, Great and wonderful are thy deeds, O Lord God, the Almighty. Just and true are thy ways, O King of the ages. Who shall not fear and glorify thy name, O Lord? For thou alone art holy. All nations shall come and worship thee, for thy judgments have been revealed. I would assume... 
Okay, uh, let me, I should have read verse 1, 15, 1. Then I saw another portent in heaven, great and wonderful, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the uh, last, for with them the wrath of God is ended. Um, well, I guess those who defeated the beast probably would be the uh, the faithful rather than angels, but who knows? Um Oh, the third angel poured his bowl into the rivers and the fountains of water, and they became blood, and I heard the angel of water say, Just art thou in these thy judgments, O thou who art and wast, O holy one. Um, well, that uh, um, seems to be singing, but it doesn't exactly say... Is there, after this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was made bright with his splendor, and he called out with a mighty voice, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, etc. Um, but doesn't say that is singing, does it? The Babylon thing seems like a funeral dirge, which would have been sung. Uh, 19, uh, the great multitude cries, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. And uh, more crying. Uh, so, but it seems like... Um, Oh, let's go back to five. Well, the four living creatures do sing, at least, in their winged beings in heaven. Uh, perhaps, it, I guess it depends on whether you want to consider them angels or not. Um, uh, but uh, at any rate, that's the my review of the evidence, I, I'm not sure why it would be uh, not permitted for angels to sing. Now, what, what do they say in Luke when they appear in the sky at the nativity? Yep, they're, uh, they're praising God and saying glory to God on the highest. Yeah, boy, that's a toughie. But the fact that it's in meter, it seems to me it's, uh, it's gotta be singing. But let me know if you find any more, uh, out about this. Yeah. Oh, um, I wonder if I can get through this whole batch. I bet I can. This one is from Matthew. Martin, Martiniuk, I hope I'm not 
butchering that. On a recent episode of the podcast, you mentioned having never quite understood how the Holy Spirit wound up being identified as the third member of the Trinity. Apologies if you've gone into depth on this issue before and I somehow missed it. Nope, if I did, I missed it too. But this is something I've wondered for many years. Growing up Catholic, I always felt like he, she, it was the odd person out. The father and son both have relatively clear and straightforward theological roles and personalities, while the spirit was described to me in more nebulous terms, sort of like the force, uh, barely a person at all, though oddly enough I always got the impression that it was somehow feminine. Maybe that's because in a previous life you spoke Aramaic where the spirit uh, was uh, of feminine um, grammatical gender and uh, therefore Jesus in one of the Jewish Christian Gospels refers to my mother, the Holy Spirit. Um, so yeah, how this was meant to be a person distinct from God the Father rather than just the activity of God never really gelled for me, and the most concrete thing I could say about it is that it seemed to be personified as a dove. This brings me to my question. I recently encountered some speculation that the Holy Spirit was included in the Trinity in order to mirror the theology of Neoplatonism, specifically in order to ape the primary Trinity of gods described in the Chaldean oracles, where you've got the first father and the second father corresponding to the Demiurge or Logos and separating the two as the world soul. If I have this right, the world soul functions to create and enforce a distinction between the first and second fathers, to end soul creation, and to transmit the platonic forms from the first father to the second father, also known as the demiurge. Due to its nature as a sort of divine middleman, the Chaldean oracles identified the world soul as the goddess Hecate, who traditionally presides over boundaries. I would be curious to hear your opinion on the idea that the Holy Spirit is essentially Hecate, transposed from Neoplatonism, or maybe more likely, given the timing, that the Christian Trinity and Chaldean oracles grew out of the same theological current in late 1st century, early 2nd century intellectual circles. If the spirit is equivalent to Hecate, a goddess of boundaries between spiritual realms, it could explain why the spirit seems to function as a kind of intermediary between God and mortals after the death of Jesus. It would furthermore help explain the impression I had that the Holy Spirit is often coded as feminine. Uh, and if that's the case, why early church fathers didn't attempt to slot Mary into this role instead, and why the church has always seemed a little reluctant to personify it at all. Or do you think this connection is just completely off base? And if so, what are some likely origins of the Holy Spirit as an odd, semi-personified member of the Trinity? 
Well, uh, Matthew, that is a, a a valiant effort and makes more sense than anything I have heard. But I have to admit, it it still seems kind of far fetched. It's it's like uh, I mean that might have been the origin, but when I say far fetched, I, I don't see really a chain of evidence to indicate that. Um, Hecate sort of sounds like. Uh, like the fallen Sophia, uh, or Akamoth, uh, who, um, stands at the, 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 uh, the limit, as they called it, between the pleroma and the, the emptiness of the world, uh, and, uh, that she wanted to have offspring like the emanations from the father. Uh, and she uh, wound up giving birth unnaturally to the demiurge, and uh, that uh, he then created the material world. But uh, he had to go back to her to steal particles of divine light in order to give life to the world and the creatures he had made. Uh, so the Holy Spirit would seem to me to fit uh, Sophia better. But who knows? It's it's not, the uh, analogy is not exact, but at least Sophia was personified. Because I have to admit, uh, it seems to me that... Um, that somehow the issue grew up with people noticing just a small number of references in the New Testament to the Holy Spirit as the Spirit of Jesus, uh, what, who, who is active, uh, very much like the Spirit of Yahweh in the Old Testament that appears to help and serve and empower and deliver his people on occasion. And they figured, well, then we're saying that is another hypostasis of the Godhead, right? Because they don't say the Father is directly coming down. It's like a, an, it's like another version of an, a theophany uh, where God is appearing invisible, though perhaps not tangible form. But it, it's, so it's not God himself, but it's not somebody else. I have a hunch, that, and they were already saying that about the spirit, as I say. Uh, and uh, so they, I'm guessing they tried to resolve that uh, and uh, that ambiguity and by another ambiguity. Okay, the spirit is a person of the Godhead. That is, the spirit is truly divine, possesses divine evidence, uh, as do the Father and the Son, um, but is he as such a separate person? Well, the, the paraclete is spoken of as he. Uh, and I guess they just sort of pieced together these bits and decided, well, I guess he's the, uh, he's sort of like another Jesus, uh, and, uh, um, gave him the honor of being the, the third person. 
So, oh boy, who knows? I, I do not know the history of the discussion of this. And it, it does bug me too. I'll try to see what I can find out about it. I'm just guessing here. Okay, here are some questions from Jason Quackenbush. He says, I'm currently writing my first ever scholarly paper, or at least as scholarly as law journals get, which is to say only marginally. Um, I'm uh, defending the claim that it's a mistake to draw methodological distinctions between the interpretation of legal texts and the interpretation of various other kinds of texts with normative content. Instead, I argue the only workable distinction is strictly teleological, by which I mean that we read the texts in pursuit of different ends, but if we're going to avoid misinterpretation or overinterpretation, we should go about our reading in the same way using similar text-critical tools. If you have any thoughts about the premise, I'd love to hear them, but if that's not fine, feel free to skip to the next questions. Uh, boy. Well, um, a legal text is sort of dealing with categorical imperatives, to steal from Kant. You have a duty and an obligation as a member of this society to heed and obey the rules. If you don't do it, you're um, welching on the deal that you have made, at least implicitly, by continuing to live here. You can't get away with that. We're going to have to fine you or imprison you or execute you because you had an, a categorical imperative, an absolute duty to uh, heed the rules that define our community. But if you're like reading directions on how to make pancakes, you don't have any obligation to make pancakes, not even if you're popping fresh, right? Uh, what, what you are reading are um, hypothetical imperatives. Uh, they are prudential uh, imperatives. They, assuming you want to make some, some pancakes, this is what you would do. You don't have to make them. Uh, you can experiment and make something else. Uh, who knows? Uh, uh, and, uh, are these pancakes? Well, they started out that way, but I decided to, to add some turpentine. Uh, uh, like, you don't have to make them, but if you did, this is prudential. This is provisional. Assuming you wanted to do it, this is the way you'd do it. Now, you want to get to a destination. You're making a long trip, and uh, you would like to have it take as little time as possible. Well, then, I would recommend taking this road to that road and then this one, and that'll cut out a lot of unnecessary driving. You don't have any obligation to do what I said. It's just good advice, pragmatically, that uh, would help you achieve what you want to do. 
And that's up to you totally. Nobody's going to fault you if you say, you know, I, I think I'd rather go the longer route because it's got to be more scenic. Well, that's fine. Do it. Uh, and I, I suspect that might be the, the issue, whether you have a, a categorical duty to, to do it or uh, just a provisional one. Assuming you want to do so-and-so, this might be the best way of doing it. So I don't know. I don't know if that makes any sense or not. Okay, first question. In my drafting, I keep thinking about your critique of certain theologians who you've described often in the past as treating the Bible as a ventriloquist dummy. That's right, Bob. Uh, have have um, you ever gone into significant depth about that particular mode of textual puppetry in any of your books or articles? I recently finished Judaizing Jesus, and there are elements of the critique in that, but I am hoping to find something specifically about the methods biblical scholars use to justify that textual uh, ventriloquism that I might be able to cite specifically for the argument and to mine for examples of biblical interpretations to compare and contrast with flawed legal readings. Um... Let's see. I have a paper on a Protestant hermeneutical axiomatics. I think maybe that is in my collection of essays uh, reinterpreting the New Testament, though I am not absolutely sure. It might be in my essay collection um, atheism and faithism. I discuss the ironies of this of, of fundamentalist approaches to the Bible in uh, let's see oh come on well in Beyond Born Again my first book, and oh, come on. Possibly merely Christianity. And I'm not, not exactly sure. I do have examples of, of these misuses of the Bible here and there in the pre-Nicene New Testament, I think. Well, i got to go back and reread some of these darn things. I hope that might help. Uh, question two, what is your view on Roland Barthes' death of the author position against pursuing authorial intent as it relates to the Bible? It strikes me that particularly with ancient religious texts, if we aren't looking for authorial intent, it's difficult to know what we might be looking for at all in an ancient religious text. But at the same time, given how many hands were involved in transmitting those texts to us, it also strains credulity to imagine a single author for most of what is left from antiquity. Uh, there's a, a real good book from the 70s uh, called The Uses of Scripture in Recent Theology by David Kelsey, K-E-L-S-E-Y. 
the uses of scripture in recent theology that uh, gets into how uh, there are different ways of, of seeking certain things in the Bible and different uses for whatever you find there. Um, I uh, deal with some of this in my book of sermons, Preaching Deconstruction, where I think I have an essay on uh, the deconstruction of the Bible. And uh, one essay of mine, uh, I guess it's in reinterpreting the New Testament, is called uh, St. John's Apothecary which is kind of an homage to Derrida's Plato's Pharmacy. And there I explore his idea of the counter-signature in a text, that because of the, the open-ended, irremovable ambiguity in all language, that often an author will unleash lines of thought that are not what he intends, but argue against it, so that there's a debate going on within the text by a single author. And I use the book of Revelation as an example of that, where you can tell the author seems to favor uh, speech, the divine word, uh, but he also has, uh, has it fight a running battle with uh, with numbers, uh, and that's where you come into the the mark of the beast and the number of his man uh, of his name and how he's defeated by the sword that comes from the mouth of uh, the returning Christ. So the human speech overcomes inscription and stuff like that. That might be uh, the the best one uh, of of mine. To, to look at. But in preaching deconstruction, I try to show how deconstructive readings may actually unlock things in the text that aren't what the writer meant, but but are points that he winds up making anyway. And like one of my favorite, I guess my favorite example is the sheep and goats parable in Matthew 25, right, where the, the uh, the Son of Man is returned. He's sitting on his glorious throne. He divides the nations before him like a shepherd divides the sheep from the goats. Uh, the, the sheep are the saved, the goats are the damned. And he speaks to the goats first. And he said, depart from me, you cursed. Uh, for when you saw me uh, sick and in prison and uh, starving and... Uh, uh, naked and so forth, you didn't lift a stinking finger to help me. Uh, and I said, what? Lord, there must be some mistake. We never saw you like this in such straits. I said, sure you did. Uh, when you, because when you neglected to help the least of my brethren, that was me you were ignoring. Uh, uh, oh, and, and implicitly they're saying, if we had known it was you, we'd have helped. 
yeah, that's just the problem. Uh, and, and then he turns, he says, get out of here. Uh, we'll go into the fire. I'm stoked for the devil and his angels. Then he turns to the sheep and he says, blessed are you, my father. Um, and, uh, and so on. Because when you saw me in these terrible conditions, you did what you could to help me. I say, oh, Lord, I, I, I don't have any recollection of that. Uh, and he says, uh, yeah, that was me. Again, the street person you saw, the sick person you saw. You didn't care who they were. You didn't know who they were, namely me. But you helped them anyway, and that's why your act was noble and deserves a reward, because you weren't seeking one. Uh, oh, well, right. Uh, and and the, what's he done? He's, by telling his parable, he has encouraged people to have the self-seeking, hypocritical concern for the poor uh, that the goats got and were damned for. Now you know the butler did it. Now you know what's at stake, so, you know... Be warned. Uh, rather, the, uh, he shouldn't have told them. This way, uh, they, uh, the reader could just go ahead and feel like, well, love your neighbor. I should help this guy. And without any thought of reward. Uh, so what's he done? He's trapping the reader into damnation. Surely he doesn't mean it, but he's unleashed a counter-signature. Uh, to what he's trying to say. And he's saying two opposite things. Uh, so th that's uh, my favorite example. And But deconstruction is a way of being on the lookout for stuff like that. Okay, question three. What do you think are the most important aspects of Derrida's post-structuralism for critical textual scholarship generally? I haven't yet read Deconstructing Jesus, but it's on my list, so I'm sorry if answering this question duplicates what you have to say there. Actually, not. I, I'm, uh, that's a bit of a different thing. That's just critical analysis of, of the various gospel materials. Um, the, I think the important thing uh, is to look for counter-signatures and uh, ambiguities that really open up the text to, to throw the point in doubt, to throw it back at you, to ask yourself to, to enter into the debate with the author, rather than just saying, okay, I see what he's getting at, I guess I better do it. I want to be a good Christian robot. Uh, and uh, so I think it's it's very helpful in, in restoring the responsibility and creativity of the reader as an interpreter and a co-creator with the author. Uh, it's not that, like, if you're trying to determine what did uh, James mean when he said faith without works is dead? Well, that's simply a kind of a biographical thing, right? I mean, that's worth knowing if you can figure out. Like, uh, you're trying to think, how different were Paul and James's thought? Well, let, let me see what clues I can find to show what each was trying to say. Uh, maybe they don't contradict. L let me do extra close scrutiny. Or 
you do that and you say, I, I got to admit these guys were just playing a different game from each other. Uh, it, so yes, you want to determine authorial intent if you can, but deconstruction says that may be only half the story. The text speaks for itself. Uh, not the author, and here's Roland Bard again, uh, the, the, the author may have said much more than he intended, and, uh, and, and he may actually have defeated himself. Um, I, I um, used to think this kind of thing was crazy, uh, what, what Bard said, the author is merely one more reader of his own text. He does not control the text and have the absolute right to tell anybody what it really means. Oh, I'm sorry, you, you missed what I was getting at. You're wrong about that. No, no, you can't do that. And what finally showed me that was something I heard Stephen King say at a Lovecraft conference. He, uh, or was it? Nah, I'm not sure. Anyway, he... Uh, Maybe it was in his book, uh, Don's Macabre. That's probably right. Uh, he, he's trying to explain what the subtext of, uh, of the exorcist was. And he said the key scene is when the girl starts masturbating with that crucifix because, uh, the subtext is that this girl is becoming a woman and that is very frightening and seems very dangerous to parents. Uh, well, okay. Uh, but he also said that the subtext of his own novel, Carrie, uh, was, um, uh, what was about the burgeoning power of women in the 70s. Uh, it was awakening and that was frightening to others. And I, uh, remember comparing the two and saying King is wrong in his interpretation of Carrie, even though he wrote it. Uh, it's plain that he, what he doesn't realize is he was saying the same thing he said about William Peter Blatt. He's the exorcist. Uh, and uh, that his interpretation is less satisfying. It doesn't make as much sense of the text. So, yeah, it doesn't really matter what the heck the author says. The author is dead. He gave birth to the text, He and he died in childbirth. The text is, is the authority. Um, so, uh, yeah. Okay, and finally, Lynn Lightfoot from Monroeville, Pennsylvania. Uh, let's see. Congratulations on your new senator. Um, I, uh, kind of like him, even though I disagree with him on everything he says, but what a character. Anyway, um, I have a two-part, it sort of reminds me of Wilbur Waitley, and of course that's no strike against him in my book. I have a two-part question on the same topic, uh, uh, as what? Uh, well, the topic of uh, concerning the return of the Messiah. One, is there any indication in the Bible that the Messiah might return as a female? Well, that happens in one of the books I read about the... Oh, uh, 
uh, lost gospels and stuff. But, uh, no, there's, there's nothing like that. They would never even have thought of that, in my opinion, because it was a chauvinistic, male-centered culture. Uh, but you might say the Catholic Church made uh, Mary into a kind of a female messiah. I mean, she has many of the uh, prerogatives and roles of the Christ, so I guess unofficially. Uh, uh, then second, is there any indication in the Bible that the messiah could not possibly return as a female? Well, they never have occasion to deny it. But uh, I, I look in vain for any uh, thought that they, they figured there could be one. Now, Jacob Frank, uh, who was a, a mystical, militant, self-proclaimed Messiah, a successor to Sabbatai Sidi. Uh, Sabbatai Sidi was a wild, uh, sort of messianic character who quipped up Jewish enthusiasm all over Europe in the 17th century, the 1600s. And after he committed apostasy and became a Muslim, um, this in the next century, Jacob Frank stepped forward and said that he was the successor. Uh, he was the second Messiah. And that there would be a third sooner or later, the Holy Virgin, who would be a woman. But as far as I know, that's the only place that ever comes up, even in the Jewish tradition. Uh, and uh, so uh, that's uh, kind of a short and sweet answer, but that's all I know about it. And you might enjoy looking into Sabbatai Sabi and Jacob Frank, really amazing characters. Okay, thanks, Lynn, and thanks to everybody else for your uh, very good questions. They're always very insightful and uh, it shows uh, the high quality of my audience, uh, my colleagues, my students. Sure do appreciate it. Uh, okay, I'll see you next time, hopefully soon, for another exciting episode of The Bible Geek! With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.